Have you ever wondered why exactly it is that things usually sound better at home than they do on stage, in auditions, or even in lessons? It's easy to chalk it up to nerves or assume that you just have to practice more or get more performance experience. And sure, those things certainly are part of the puzzle, but a lot of times that's not really the true root cause. If you've been confused by the inconsistency of your performances, I put together a free four-minute quiz called the Mental Skills Audit, which will help you pinpoint your mental strengths and weaknesses and figure out what exactly to adjust and tweak in your preparation for more consistently optimal performances. You can take the Mental Skills Audit online at bulletproofmusician.com MSA. That's MSA for Mental Skills Audit. And again, it's 100% free, and it'll take just four minutes to get your results emailed to you as a PDF. This is Noah Kageyama, and you're listening to the Bulletproof Musician Podcast. Every Sunday morning, we'll take a look at a new research-based tip or technique to help you practice more effectively or perform better under pressure. And on the first Sunday of every month, I'll have a guest from the music, sport, or research world who will share their insights on how we can all be a little more awesome in the practice room and on stage. What if I start shaking and embarrass myself in studio class? What if I mess up this gig and don't get invited back? What if I started getting serious too late? What if things don't work out? What if the aggregate total of jelly and the dozen donuts I'm bringing home is too much liquid to carry on and I can't get through airport security? It's pretty easy to get stuck in a cycle of worries and what-ifs, and to become increasingly anxious and stressed out as we dwell on thoughts that feel very real and increasingly likely the longer we think about them. In reading books about this sort of thing over the years, I always remembered seeing a claim that 90% of the things we worry about never happen. This makes for a great quote to post on Facebook with a pretty picture, but is there any truth to this number? Like, is this a real statistic with any actual data or research behind it? Or is it one of those made-up numbers that seems to show up all over the internet, but nobody knows where it actually came from? Like how it takes 21 days to form a new habit or how 73.6% of all statistics are made up. Because that 90% statistic becomes much less reassuring if there's no actual data to back it up. A recent study analyzed the worry journals of 29 undergraduate students to determine just how many of their worries actually came true over the course of three weeks. The participants weren't formally diagnosed with any sort of anxiety disorder, but all met the full criteria for generalized anxiety disorder, as determined by a screening tool known as the GADQ4. After being accepted into the study, participants came to the lab and were trained in one particular psychological strategy for managing worries. Known as the Worry Outcome Journal, it involves writing down your worries and tracking them to see how many actually come true. The rationale being, quote, As you pay attention to how upsetting, disrupting, and costly your worries are, and as you see clear evidence in your life that the things you worry about actually do not happen, you will recognize the uselessness of worrying and begin to engage in it less. Without these anxious thoughts in your life, your anxiety should also lessen. So for 10 days, participants recorded their worries anytime they felt like it, but at least four times a day, 
when randomly prompted by a text message, like once between 8 a.m. and noon, again between noon and 3 p.m., between 3 and 6 p.m., and one last time between 6 and 9 p.m. And specifically, they recorded the worry itself, defined as a specific, testable, anxiety-inducing prediction about the future. They also recorded the degree of distress this was causing them, from one being no distress to seven being severe distress. They also recorded how much space the worry was taking up by answering the question, how much time did that worry take up since I first had the worry? And finally, they recorded two estimates of the likelihood of that particular worry coming true. One estimate being based on their gut feelings or intuition, or the emotional likelihood of the worry coming true, and the other estimate being the logical likelihood of the worry, which the participants arrived at by answering the question, if the most rational person in the world were to give a probability as to how likely this event would come true, what would it be? Every evening, they reported if any worries had come true, and if so, whether the outcome was as bad as, worse than, or better than expected. A day after logging their last worry, the participants completed the GADQ4 once more to see if there were any changes to their anxiety over the course of the past 10 days. And on the 30th day of the study, 20 days after their final day of worry journaling, participants were asked to review each of their logged worries and note if any of them had come true and if so, whether they were as bad as, worse than, or better than expected. So how many of their worries actually came true? Well, as it turns out, that made-up 90% number isn't so far off. On average, 91.39% of participants' worries did not come true. And for seven participants, or about one out of every four participants, none of their worries came true. It's also worth noting that for the few worries that did come true, participants rated about a third of them as having turned out better than expected. All in all, participants were not great at predicting the likelihood of worries coming true. When they tuned into their gut feelings about things, their average estimate was about 62% versus the actual likelihood of 8.6%. Even when trying to think more logically, their probability estimate was still pretty inflated at about 42%, again, versus the real percentage of 8.6. So how big a deal is it that their worries didn't come true? As in, what was the cost of worrying? Well, evidently, worrying takes quite a bit of time. On average, participants found that worrying took up about 26% of each day's thinking time, and about 43% of the two-hour block of time just before they recorded the worry in their journal. And perhaps more importantly, Worrying had a significant emotional cost. During the early part of treatment, participants reported an average distress rating of 4.51 out of 7, which would be a moderate to high level of distress. So what is the main takeaway here? Well, it's important to note that this is a smallish sample of just 29 university-age participants, only three of which were men, so it's not clear how generalizable the results are to everyone. However, it is the first study to take a rigorous look at the question of how many of our worries actually come true, and I do think it helps to know that it's probably a far smaller number than we imagine. But now that we know this, what do we do? Well, it'd be nice if I could just say don't worry and leave it at that, but trying not to think about the things we're worrying about often makes us think about them even more. 
So one thing you could try is the worry outcome journal exercise, just as the participants in this study did. Because when compared with another group of individuals who wrote down more general daily thoughts, the worry outcome journal group experienced a greater decrease in worries over time. There even seems to be an iOS app that approximates this exercise. It's called the Worry Watch Anxiety Journal. And it's $4, but for what it's worth, I have no connection to the developer. The second thing is to practice mindfulness, or the ability to shift your mind away from worries about the future and towards whatever is in your immediate present. This can also be a useful tool on stage and performance, so I guess you can kill two birds with one stone. And if you need something quick and easy to remember when you feel yourself getting sucked into a worry spiral, the 54321 mindfulness hack is also a good exercise to have in your toolbox. The gist is to name five things you see, four things you can hear, three things you can feel, two things you can smell, and one thing you can taste in the moment. It seems simple, but it does force you to get your mind back to the present, which is almost always a way more calming and real place to be than whatever nightmare future your brain was getting you all worked up about. You can find links to this week's study and other resources at bulletproofmusician.com blog. And if you found the episode helpful, please share it with a friend or practice buddy who you think might also enjoy experimenting with this during the coming week. 